Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A recent survey released by the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators and the Pennsylvania Association of School Business Officials paints a less than stellar picture of the state schools. The state budget that was nine months late continues to haunt schools. The survey found that 14% of districts were forced to borrow almost $750 million last year. If the upcoming budget isn't passed by June 30th, more than one-third of the districts say they'll be forced to borrow again. That's just one of the many findings of, of this survey that we're going to discuss on today's program. Joining me is Jim, Jim Buckheit, who is, uh, I'll get that out, Jim Buckheit, who is Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators. Mr. Buckheit, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. Also joining us is Jeff Ammerman, Director of Member Assistance of the Pennsylvania Association of School Business Officials. Mr. Ammerman, welcome to the show. Thank you too, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, I'm going to start with some of the basics just to lay some groundwork for this. How did this survey come about? Well, this is a survey that our two associations have joined together and been conducting now. This is the sixth year that we've performed the survey, and it really started with the outcome of the um, the recession, the 2008 recession, the fallout from that, and the state funding problems that existed after that, and uh, changes in funding that uh, schools across the state received. So we've been doing this survey each for the last six years. Uh, we performed the survey this April uh, again. Uh, we had a, uh, 355 of the 500 school districts respond, 71% response rate, which is the highest ever and, and a very good response. Because most surveys, you're lucky you get 50%, if that. Absolutely. And we had uh, uh, school districts respond from every uh, all 67 counties across the state, uh, representing about 1.2 million of our 1.7 million students in the state. So we really had a great uh, representative sample of school districts. Uh, you know, uh, I, I had to look at the, 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 the title of this year, and I wondered if this is one of those things that I imagine you have a different title every year, but uh, Continued Cuts, Losing Confidence, Losing Learning. I assume that that was named after the results came back. Absolutely. Actually, we, we, we spent a great deal of time deciding what the uh, the uh, title of this would be, and, and uh, a number of these have been called continued cuts, but after we looked at, at what came back, I mean, there was confidence being lost simply because um, this year was kind of unique in that every year, I think, school districts struggle with how much are they going to get from the state simply because they have to pass their budgets most times in advance of, of when the state passes their final budget. But it became even more difficult this year in that not only did they not know how much money they were going to get from the state. They didn't know when they were going to get any cash at all from the state. And that really was uh, the confidence that I, I think is uh, that was lost that's referred to in here. And as well as, you know, with that uncertainty, uh, changes have to be made. And that's really a lot of what's gone on in this survey that's being documented. I, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on, um, I don't know, how the, the schools were impacted by the state budget impasse, although it's a big part of it. Uh, but I want to get into some of the specifics here in a moment. But kind of give me a sense. I mean, I know that district, different districts were uh, impacted different ways. I know Erie, for example, was a district that was on the verge of, of shutting down classes, for example, if money wasn't coming from the state. But And I'm going to use the word chaos because I assume that that's how a lot of districts looked at this. But give me a general sense of what that nine-month delay did to schools across the state. 
Well, I think on the front end, it, it, it as, as Jeff said, it's very difficult in any year because of the, just the way the process works. School districts have to adopt their budgets before the state adopts its budget in a normal year. And so you don't know how much money you're going to be getting to work with from the state. That dictates how many staff you hire, how many books you buy, how many uh, extra uh, uh, teachers you may have in the classroom to reduce class sizes or change class sizes, any new programs you're going to institute. So you really can't plan well, given the way this whole budgeting process works that we have to deal with. So that's just the normal everyday thing. Throwing on top of that, not passing a budget, and having this battle royale between the administration and the legislature over how much they're going to put in, everybody was in, in a quandary. And so they went into sort of this preservation mode. So um, plans for hiring teachers or buying new books were all put aside for the most part. You couldn't go forward and, and replace staff that you lost. You couldn't institute new programs. You couldn't do the normal things that you would do to try to properly educate students. Everything was sort of put on hold. And then places like Erie uh, and uh, uh, you know Philadelphia, Allentown, York, places that are normally struggling anyway, that just made that situation even worse. And they were struggling just to keep their doors open, uh, having not having the cash flow to be able to pay their staff. You know, in many people's minds, the bottom line is student instruction and the education of students. Were students impacted by that? Absolutely. In Absolutely. What in what way? Well, uh, as as I noted. Schools weren't filling positions because you didn't know how much money you had to have. So, you know, school nurses, guidance counselors, teachers uh, were not being hired. Uh, New books weren't being put into the classroom. Uh, Special services were being cut. Uh, Field trips that were planned were canceled. Uh, Extra things that the school would normally have done to help students were put all to the side because of not knowing the uncertainty of the funding. Okay, let me just push back for just a moment because there would be some people say, well, you know what, everyone who relied on money from the state was in this situation. Okay, the students did get new books, but the old books weren't that that old for the most part. Now, there may be some. There may be some. But uh, that couldn't they get by on uh, a year, a book that's a year older or... Do new teachers have to be hired? Do they have to go on field trips? So normally you're going to lose six, seven, eight percent of your staff due to retirements, due to people just moving on to other things. So when you lo- when you're in an elementary school and you have three sections of third grade and there's twenty three students in each class and you lose a teacher, are, you're either going to replace right. that teacher or you're going to have much larger class sizes. And you have to have a math teacher to figure uh, it out. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. But then, but then at the high school, it's even worse because you have much more highly specialized staff. Right. You right. lose your physics teacher. You don't teach physics. Right. And I think the thing that makes this a little different for school districts is that um, while some of the social service agencies certainly had to deal with this and it was devastating to them as well, this is the first year for many of them that having having to deal with this. But school districts since 2011-12 have been dealing with uh, reduced funding at the same time pension costs are going up. So this isn't the first. If this was the first year, it would have been bad, um, and, and, and but it wouldn't be uh, many years. So, so, you know, Jim indicated we've done this survey for six years, and we have seen that a lot of these things, so other 
other purchases have been delayed, other class sizes have grown. This isn't the first time we've seen these results. So it was kind of lopped on top of uh, decisions that have already been made over the last five or six years. All right, let's get into some of the uh, specifics of the survey. In your minds, um, what were the biggest findings of the survey? And Jeff, I'll ask you first. Well, I, I mean, uh, the the biggest findings, we, we looked at mandated expenses and how that impacts school districts. And not surprisingly, almost all districts are facing mandated expense increases, certainly in pension. It's one of the biggest drivers. You know, it wasn't all that long ago that school districts spent maybe about a half a billion dollars on pension expense. Uh, for the upcoming year, it's going to be over $3 billion. So in Five years, almost all new dollars that school districts have gotten have gone to pensions, number one. Uh, and then other things like uh, charter school expenses and, and he- uh, health insurance. So it's just sort of this idea. The state certainly gave school districts uh, in the ultimate budget that was passed, you know, m- more than $200 million. But most and not most, all of that money was consumed by these these mandated expenses. So it really has been a challenge. I, I think that's really one of the, the, the recurring themes. Why did all those things you talk about happen? Why did we uh, reduce programs? Why are class sizes going up? It's because these mandated expenses are going up in a way that school districts can't change in the short term, and all new dollars are kind of going there. Give me a sense of... I don't know. How would you describe your thoughts about the, the, the pensions? Because this is an issue that we hear a lot about in the legislature. In fact, just this week, the House passed uh, what is called pension reform. There are a lot of people who are critical of that, saying it doesn't go too uh, far enough, saves the state $5 million over 32 billion. years. Did I say million? Yeah. Okay, I meant $5 billion. <laughs> Five billion. All these are bees, by yeah. the way. When we're talking about pensions, uh, five billion dollars over thirty-two years, which, in the the scope of a state budget, doesn't sound like a whole lot. That's been the criticism, but the people who voted for it have said, "Well, it's a step in the right direction. At least something been done." But when you hear about that, does that mean anything to schools? I mean, what do you hear when you hear five billion dollars saved over thirty-two years, and does that help you at all? Uh, I mean, we've looked at this, and, and the real challenge is uh, there is uh, there's a pension debt that's owed to current employees, and if there's no change to that, and well, I it's believe, like sixty billion dollars, yeah, right, right. So any change, I mean, the legislature is doing what it can, but any change is not going to have any meaningful effect till long past. Jim and I are both retired, so that's really the challenge: is that uh, the the pension is owed. Any changes will be prospective going forward. So uh, it's certainly a good effort to look at what you can do in the future, but I don't believe there's any solution out there that will affect the short term. Jim, uh, one of the other things that uh, you found with your members, uh, unpaid school construction costs. Talk about that. So the state has a a subsidy program where they help pay for the cost of maintaining, uh, ongoing maintenance, upgrading, uh, and construction of school buildings. And... It, it's the latest uh, appropriation provided $306 million a year. It's a, it's a substantial amount of money. Uh, there was a backlog where schools during the 2000s undertook lots of projects. They had a lot of work to do, a lot of catching up to do, a lot of modernization to do. And so the state appropriation, that 306 actually it's fluctuated over time, was insufficient for meeting their obligations. Even though the state approved the school construction projects and said, we will, will pay you this amount, they 
funding that the General Assembly appropriated was insufficient to cover those. So we had a backlog uh, for, for several years. And then uh, about five years ago, we guess we actually had a moratorium where the state said, we're not approving any more projects. They did that for two years. We're now in the, the third time they've done it. They have another moratorium in place right now where they say, we're not going to approve any more projects. And so um, uh, sort of all that is the context. This uh, current year we're in with the late state budget, there was zero dollars appropriated to pay reimburse school districts for these costs. And these uh, are not new costs. Some of these projects are for schools that students have been in attending for 10 years. Uh, when schools undertake construction like this, they usually borrow, will float a bond. It will be like a 25, 20 year bond. And this, this money from the state will help pay for that bond over the 20-year period. So school districts this year receive zero from the state to cover those costs. That's about three, you know, that amount exceeds the additional state funding that they receive through the basic education funding uh, appropriation. So uh, this has been a serious problem, a major backlog. Uh, the, the, in the fiscal code, another piece of state legislation that was finally uh, put into place last month, there was a provision for the state to float a bond and to finally make whole the payments to the school districts. So that is going to take a long time to get that out and to get that cash flowing. And the money, we don't expect the money to start flowing until next fiscal year. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the results of uh, these findings in just a moment. I don't just mean the results of the findings, but what it means to taxpayers, students, administrators, teachers, everyone. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today, Jeff Ammerman, who is Director of Member Assistance of the Pennsylvania Association of School Business Officials, and Jim Buckheit, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators. They put out a survey uh, a few weeks ago uh, looking at uh, you know, it was a survey of Pennsylvania school districts. Seventy-one percent responded, and uh, I saw one, one media account that described it as bleak. I don't know if we'll go that far or not, but uh, probably it's it's not very uh, optimistic, put it that way. If you have a question or a comment, we are taking some phone calls, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. All right, let's look at some of the specific results of the survey. 85% said that they plan to increase property taxes. That is not good news for the taxpayers of this state. What about that? And it, it comes it, it comes back to some of the things we've talked about earlier, that the mandated costs are going up. Uh, the state certainly did provide some new funds this year, but the new funds were not enough to even keep districts at a break-even level. So once you've accounted for your charter school costs, health insurance costs, pension costs, and, and that doesn't take any of the other costs that may go up uh, into a f- account, the districts are really not even able to maintain what they've been doing over the last few years. So the only other revenue stream available to school districts is property taxes. And again, districts, uh, uh, we're, we're coming off four or five years of this. So, um, you know, if you look, 
at, at, at state spend, or school district spending over the last five years, schools are spending less money on salaries in 1415, the numbers just came out, than they did in 1011. So, you know, just to put this in context, school districts have been doing a lot of things for a lot of time to cut their expenses, but there are some expenses that can't be cut, and to keep the, they, they have a duty to educate students, and, you know, when, when you've done all you can to not go to revenue, revenue is the last, uh, last option that districts have to go to. What about the percentage that uh, plan to raise their tax rates above Act 1? And just for some background, Act 1 was something that was adopted a few years ago that, that was intended to limit the amount of tax increases uh, that a school district can ask for. But uh, it, quite frankly, many, many school districts have had to go above that limit. Now, they have to ask, you know, they have to jump through some hoops to do that, but what percentage in this survey intend to go above those limits? Uh, we, we have 30 percent uh, in the upcoming year and 30 percent indicated last year. Now, Act 1 exceptions have really been narrowed over the last few years. The really, uh, there, there's an exception left for grandfather debt, but as I've said a few times, grandfather's getting pretty old because that, that's from 2006, so there's not much of that remaining. Uh, and really, the only other two exceptions are for the costs that we talked about, special education and pensions. So it really is these 30% of districts, um, if they're going to raise taxes, it's because those costs are going up more quickly than they can cover with uh, existing revenue. You know, I know that there are taxpayers out there just saying, how much is enough? I mean, a Commonwealth Foundation this week released some information that said Pennsylvania, and this is no secret either, that Pennsylvania spends about $16,000 per student, which is one of the highest rates in, in the country. How much is enough? Well, I, I think it's important to note because the Commonwealth Foundation often says we're far above the national average. But if you look at where we are in the country and our neighboring states, we're right along with where they are. So we spend about 16,000, Maryland spends about 16,000, New Jersey spends almost 20,000, New York spends 21,000, uh, Delaware spends almost 15,000, uh, Ohio spends 13,000. So we're right in the same, you know, we, basically what drives the costs are labor costs. That's where the bulk of the costs of running an enterprise, which is heavily um, human intensive, uh, business that that education is that's what drives the cost and so uh, we're right in there and and what what is the right amount you know it, it is what um, you need to provide the resources to do the job that you're asked to do so the state sets expectations not anyone else the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania says these are the expectations that we set for students who graduate from your schools, and we're going to hold you accountable for that. And so you need to put the resources in. You need the right number of teachers, equipment, supplies, all the support services, all the other things that go into meeting those objectives into the pot. And if you come up with that Ultimately, there's ways to try to figure that out, and the state did a study back in 2007, right. which right. did that. Um, nobody liked the results. <laughs> it said, basically, we need about $3 billion more as a system to fund the schools. And I think that's probably still about where we are right now. And that was nine years ago. Yes, it was. I think you're being optimistic. If you oh, think well, I'm, I'm, years I'm ago. being realistic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in, I'm gonna get into some of the specifics a little bit more of the, the survey. 
there was a story this week in Penn Live Patriot News, and also LNP in Lancaster did something in Lancaster County School Districts, that Pennsylvania schools have a surplus of $4.3 billion. That much, they have four, over $4 billion in reserve right now. Most people would look at that and say, what? You have that much in reserve and you're coming back and asking for property tax increases? Right. You're shaking your head, Jim. Yeah, absolutely. I, it, so it's important to note this is school districts, just like any business, just like WITF, just like uh, homeowners, uh, need to have something in the bank to cover emergencies. So first of all, that's one of the fundamental pieces. Uh, the financial uh, industry that loans monies to school to do the construction says you ought to have 5% of your budget in reserves just to make sure that you have some money in the, in the background in case there's some issue and you can pay or the debt that you owe us. Um, it's the guard against the challenges that school districts face this year with not receiving state funds. Just think if, if, if school districts didn't have some of that money set aside this year, we wouldn't be talking about $750 million in borrowing. We would have been talking about billions in borrowing for school districts to keep their doors open. Um, schools now, largely because of the construction issue and the, the, the lack of predictability of state funding for overall funding, but also for the school construction uh, uh, reimbursements, are now starting to sock money away so they can pay cash for a building project in the future, as opposed to trying to float a bond mm. and pay interest, and pay interest over time. Yeah. So in many ways, it's a more prudent way about going about uh, things. So there's a lot of reasons why districts are socking away. And the other really important thing that some of those articles didn't talk about, um, 41%, 206 school districts spent down their fund balance that year by $279 million. So this really is a good example of the have and have not system of education funding that we have in this state. So you're saying the $4.3 billion, most of it that haven't reserves, are the haves, the bigger school, the school districts that have uh, a lot of resources. Yeah, 28% of the school districts hold almost two-thirds of that fund balance. Okay. But let me ask you this. I mean, just uh, on the surface, if you don't use the reserve and you raise property taxes, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to people. So the reserves are there for multiple reasons. There's like three categories of reserves. But shouldn't that be one of them? It depends on where that money is. There's, there's committed. There's actually money set aside to meet obligations that under law you have to meet. So well over a billion dollars of that amount is set aside for that. So let's just take that off the top because that money is already committed going to something. There's another pot that is uh, designated for other purposes. And that's a little softer and a little fle more flexible, but they have plans for it. And then there's this uh, um, undesignated balance that that is, I don't know, is it about a little over a billion? Yeah, it's somewhere in that right? Uh, uh, that is the flexible money that they can use. And they have been using that. That's where that $279 million is that they spent down uh, this this past year uh, yeah. to help cover their costs. And so, you know, you'll, in, in, from our report, uh, uh, let's see what the number is. I think it's over 80%. Was yeah, it? so 80% of the districts this year are planning on using fund balance to balance their budgets. 
They are, but they're, they're doing it prudently. It's not like we're going to dump it all at once. We're going to, because of these mandated, consistently increasing uh, state mandated costs, we're going to use a little bit of that a year over time to help soften the cuts, soften the tax increases, and try to get us um, survive going forward over a longer but period. But you realize, of course, that uh, human nature being what it is, you're going to have taxpayers going to say, I'd much rather go to that uh, that reserve than me pay higher taxes. All right, let's get into some of the other uh, some of the other uh, results of the of the survey. Fifty six percent plan to cut or reduce programs and 46 percent plan to reduce staff. Talk about that. Well, I, and it's, again, uh, another one of these things that, that have been consistent over the, the time we've been doing this uh, report. So um, staff reductions, uh, often through attrition. So what that means in the classroom, Jim talked about it earlier. If I used to have three second grade teachers and I had 23 per class and now I'm down to two, um, can't do that math in my head, but it's a much <laughs> a much bigger classroom. So uh, that's Wait a second, the business manager guy. Can't yeah, yeah. Do I, I, I try, trying to do a quick quick math in my head. It, 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 it seems like it would go up pretty significantly. Okay, yeah, it's, right. it's somewhere okay. over th- actually 34 and a half. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Nothing like being tested right on the air. So, so you you have a significant increase in in class sizes, and again, the report ref- refers to that 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 what this staff reduction tends to mean is increase in staffs uh, in class sizes, and a majority of those staff size increases, I believe, about thirty four percent indicated that uh, they would inc- increase staff size, um, class size, not staff size, in uh, sixteen seventeen. And a majority of that's going on at the elementary level. Yes, yeah, 73% said they uh, plan to increase elementary class sizes, 64% increase uh, high school class sizes. Um, you know, I know that uh, ideally that we'd like to have uh, a nice ratio from teacher to, what is it, 15 students, 20 students, About, something like well, that? In elementary, depending on the grade level. So if you're looking at pre-K to three, ideally about 18. Okay. And then, so right then, then, then you go from grades four, five, six. Then you can get into twenty-four. That's a little more acceptable. So increasing these these class sizes to what? What numbers are we looking at? Well, a lot of elementary schools we're now seeing class sizes of twenty-four, twenty-five in the early grades, and that's really where we where the research shows that it does make a difference. Why? What difference? Well, it's much more uh, individualized attention given. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if a teacher is splitting their time among right. 18 students, a lot different than if it's 25 students. So they can give much more individualized attention to those students, particularly the ones that are struggling. Are there districts that are trying to f- find a way to overcome that? I'm thinking like student teachers, teacher aides, things like that. Well, actually, the yeah, teacher aides is a bit or is a big part of uh, the instructional practice uh, in schools now, um, particularly more students with learning disabilities are uh, integrated into the regular classroom setting, so they need special attention and special supports. So oftentimes there are aides in there. Actually, the aides are one of the things, probably one of the largest groups of uh, school staff that have been reduced over the last several years, just because they're the te- you have to have the teacher here. Everybody else is secondary. All right. Now, what I'm getting at, I'm kind of leading it down the road uh, towards something. And this isn't, um, you know, a question so much about hiring new teachers. It's whether new teachers are available. 
coming out? Are there, you know, I've seen stories that say that there aren't as many education majors in in uh, colleges nowadays. Do we have a shortage of young teachers, teachers taking on the pro profession, entering the profession right now? We um, have always had some shortages in some specialized areas, so math, science, foreign languages. Uh, that's always been a challenge in every place across the country. Uh, Pennsylvania's been a, a uh, teacher preparation uh, uh, outsourcer, basically. Um, prior to just the last few years, the state would traditionally prepare anywhere between 12 and 16,000 new teachers a year, just because of the sheer number of colleges and universities that have programs in the state. And so people that would come out, they'd go to other states to work, and which is great. Um, but what we've seen, as you noted, the, the, the number of certificates that the Department of Education is issuing to new teachers has been dropped almost in half in the last couple of years. Uh, high school students see, you know, these teachers are getting furloughed. People are saying, this is really a hard place to be right now. Don't go there. And so the enrollments in the colleges and the teacher preparation programs across the state has, has dropped almost by half. It, they just don't see it as a, a secure future. Absolutely. First, they're worried about getting a job. And then secondly, you know, we've been talking about pensions and some of the compensation issues and things like that. So they see that as not a particularly attractive uh, profession. Special education, we've mentioned that uh, a couple times, but get a little more specific for me, if you can, of what those increased costs are with with special education. Uh, special education is, is highly regulated, and I'll, I'll let Jim chime in on that because that's, that's more on, on, the, on the curriculum side. But, you know, there, there are spe specified class sizes that you can't go above. Um, each individual student has what's called an individual educational um, uh, profile, an IEP, which uh, ex uh, ex explains what needs to be provided. Um, and so this isn't something that's optional. Uh, there are placements. Um, a couple of years ago, actually, we worked uh, together on the uh, – there was a special education funding formula that was passed. Uh, and began to address some of these uh, issues, but sometimes there are placements, uh, outplacements. The district cannot uh, educate that child in 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 house that are fifty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars. So you have. I think the other thing that has been going on is there. There's been a growth in just the number of students who are identified as special Th that education. That was my next question. Yeah. And why is that? Um, uh, <laughs> we don't know. I mean, you know, so about sixteen percent of the enrollment in Pennsylvania uh, have uh, some kind of a disability, learning disability or physical disability or health disability that schools have to provide support to. And this is a, a federal requirement. So there's a federal law that says states, we're going to give you some money, but in order to get that money, you have to meet these requirements. And then there's even more extensive state requirements that apply to school districts. So we have students who have everything from a mild learning disability that a, with the regular classroom teacher can provide supports for to students with multiple disabilities. They have serious health issues, they have serious emotional issues, and they have serious learning disabilities that they require all you know, many additional services and supports. Some may require a full-time staff person assigned just to them to help them get through the day and to take to learn as much as they can. Uh, so we have the full spectrum of costs there. Uh, uh, last year, uh, Pennsylvania School District spent $4 billion 
on special education services, just to give you sort of the, the cost of that in addition to the regular costs. Mm-hmm. And, and those costs went up over the prior year because we looked at this as we looked at our mandated costs by, I believe, around $250 million. So just to give you an idea of, you know, state gave about that amount of money to school districts uh, in the most recent year. Uh, their special education costs, this is one year, it's 13, 14 to 14, 15, went up by that amount of money. So you have some idea of the growing burden of special education. You know, you, you mentioned, Jim, that it is uh, basically a federal mandate, as well it should, as it should be. I mean, it's something that uh, that should be done. But can we do it differently and still have the same outcomes or better outcomes? Well, there's always ways to help um, try to save money and to maximize the learning opportunities for the students in a more efficient way. Uh, and there's always work trying to be done uh, to do that. Um, you know, is there any wholesale solution to this? No. I mean, and that's you know, one of the problems it's, 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 with many of the issues we're talking about. Right. But, uh, but you have to understand in, in, this, in kids with disabilities, every single one is different. Every single one has a different plan and need of supports. And so um, I don't know how you can sort of mass customize that in a more efficient way. Um, There are a lot of issues around this. You could have a whole other show about it. Um, uh, But it's a a challenge. It continues to be a challenge. Uh, And, you know, I, I know that Congress will be looking at reauthorizing the Individual with Disabilities Education Act in the next uh, couple of years. So hopefully some of the issues that uh, district leaders have raised and shared with them can uh, be addressed next time around. Um, what about charter schools? I know that this is something that uh, the superintendents, the districts across the state for the last few years now have been uh, you know, pressuring the legislature we've, that you've got to have some reform. What about charter schools? And charter schools are another one of those cases where districts don't have any real control over that. So that that cost over the last couple of years has grown by about $150 million annually. So again, we, we've got $250 million in special ed, we have $150 million in charters. And the challenge is, is it's from both sides. So if I'm a relatively small district, I lose two third graders to uh, a charter school, I'm going to pay that tuition to that charter school. So it, it may be $10,000. So $20,000 leaves my district with two kids. I'm not going to be able to reduce a teacher. I'm not going to be able to uh, eliminate a bus. I'm not going to be able to do much besides have two less books. So the real challenge in this, the, the way Pennsylvania does this, is for every child that leaves, on average, $10,000 goes with them, but the home district is unable to reduce costs by much. If you lose 25 second graders, yeah, you, you can have some impact. But if you lose 25 kids and they're spread from K to 12, you, you have very little impact. So that's the real challenge school districts are facing is the money is leaving the district, but there's no corresponding savings left back in the district. We had an email from a listener, Donna, says, please keep in mind that some students have uh, GIEP for the gifted, always a class looking to be cut. And that is uh, w- one of the areas that uh, many school districts uh, do look at. Uh, we only have about three minutes left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. You know, I... I We've talked a lot about money, and I know, as I said to you earlier, that uh, I saw at least one media report that described this as bleak. Would you agree with that? I mean, I almost get the the sense here that uh, there's not a whole lot of pessimism, or excuse me, a lot of optimism, and uh, that 
yeah, schools are spinning their wheels. Yeah, so, you know, our members, the superintendents, business managers, um, other teachers, and everyone else, they go to school every day trying to make sure they can do the best they can for the kids who come in their doors to educate those kids. And so they get all kinds of things thrown at them, and they're going to work through and find a way to do the best they can. So, you know, these are optimistic people. They're constantly under the gun. They're still always trying to find the resources to do what's being asked of them and to try to help um, maximize the opportunities for the kids they they are responsible for. Um, so, you know, that's going on out there. Despite all this gr- grim, you know, big picture issues that we talk about, they're still going to school every day. The kids are coming to school. They're learning. They're doing well. Um, but we could do a lot better for that kids. Well, then let's talk about the kids because, I mean, we're talking mostly about money here. Obviously, it costs a lot of money to educate uh, children across the state. But with all these mandates, with all the money that's flowing, is there evidence that uh, the kids are getting a better education? Well, right now we're struggling. You know, we made some significant strides during the 2000s. We substantially increased student achievement as measured by both state and national tests. Uh, and uh, graduation rates increase. We have the highest high school graduation rate in the state's history right now. Uh, so there are lots of good stories to tell. Uh, but at, you know, now six years into continuing to cut, continuing to reduce these learning opportunities, I don't know how we're going to be able to keep it up. Uh, you know, people are really working hard. Uh, they're they're doing everything they can, but without the resources and the capacity to do the work they're being asked to do, I think we're going to start to see some turning in the other direction. Uh, One of the questions that we ask in the survey, uh, what do you predict uh, 2016-17 to look like? And 97% answered they predict the same or worse than the current year. I hate to leave it on that, but uh, they were going to have to. Uh, Jim Buckheit is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators. Jeff Ammerman is director of member assistance of the Pennsylvania Association of School Business Officials. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, thank Scott. You. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. A story we've been following closely here at WITF is the proposed merger between two of Central Pennsylvania's largest health care providers, Pinnacle Health and Penn State Health. The merger is being challenged for being too big. WITF's transforming health reporter Ben Allen is with us with the latest. Ben, welcome back to the program. Uh, it's always great to be here, Scott. Everybody loves to talk health care mergers <laughs> on a Friday. Well, I want to know, when you go out with your friends <laughs> on Friday nights, do you talk about health care mergers? Okay, in all seriousness, and I'm not just saying this, people, when they ask me, oh, what's the big story you're working on? And I say this, they say, hey, what is actually going on about that? So um, surprisingly to me and to others, this is something that people want to know about. So here we are. That's why we're here. How about some background? Okay. So uh, the background here, Penn State Health, Pinnacle Health, these are the two uh, major uh, health systems in uh, a good portion of the mid-state. Of course, you have Lancaster General, uh, Penn Medicine, and Lancaster County and Wellspan in York 
County and uh, and parts of Lebanon County as well. But Penn, uh, or I should say, Pinnacle Health, Penn State Hershey Medical Center, Penn State Health, trying to merge. They have been working on this merger for years now. Uh, it was challenged in court by the Federal Trade Commission and State Attorney General's Office. They uh, say that this merger, w- these this new health system, um, would would control too much of the market in uh, in four counties in the mid-state, and as a result, they've challenged it. Went to a federal judge uh, in Harrisburg, and that federal judge, Judge John Jones III, who's ruled on a number of cases, the intelligent design case, he ruled on same-sex marriage in Pennsylvania. He's a legend. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, as close as you can get to a legend in, 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 <laughs> in judicial, courts, yeah, yeah. In, in federal courts. But um, he ruled on this case, and he decided after after five days of hearings that you know, this merger should go forward. He didn't see enough to stop the merger. So in 95, maybe even 98 percent of cases, the Federal Trade Commission has historically said, OK, you know, we're, we're not going to fight this anymore. Um, in this case, they did not. Uh, they they appealed it. They and the state attorney general's office have appealed that ruling. That was uh, a ruling back in May, and now it's going to a federal, uh, a higher federal court. This is the Third Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in Philadelphia. So right now, what they're doing is kind of laying out their arguments. We've yeah, got what are those new arguments? yeah. So um, both sides have have laid out arguments in, in briefs, and um, the first argument c- came from uh, the government, and they said. The government, or, or excuse me, um, the the uh, the federal judge ignored the roles that insurance companies play in this. They talked a lot about the ruling, talked a lot about patients and patients picking different hospitals, and if prices went up, patients could go to other hospitals. Well, the Federal Trade Commission and State Attorney General's office says you're forgetting about insurance companies. There isn't enough there in this ruling to talk about the role that insurance companies play in negotiating prices and figuring out where their patients are going to go. Because as you and I know, big difference between whether a hospital is in network or out of network. Oh my God! Yes. Um, so they're saying that insurance companies play play a large role in that, and they also talk about how the ruling, in their mind, uh, doesn't focus too much on Pinnacle. It kind of looks at what Penn State Hershey Medical Center is going to do. A lot of talk about this proposed bed tower that they'd have to build. Um, But they say Judge John Jones III doesn't really look at what Pinnacle might do. Could Pinnacle raise prices to get more in line with Penn State uh, Health if they became one entity? Would that mean the prices would would jump at Harrisburg Hospital and all the other uh, providers that are part of Pinnacle's network? And they say that they actually um, show that these agreements, there were these rate agreements that um, the hospitals have made, the health systems have made with insurers that they won't raise rates for at least five years. They say those agreements actually show that insurers are nervous about increases because why would you make an agreement like that if you're not nervous that prices might go up? And so they say the market as it's defined is is kind of um, correct. They also say there's a lot of, you know, you know how lawyers talk and how right, you know, how they write. There's a lot of bluster and a lot of flowery language here. But they I just want to drop these phrases here, at least so people can get an idea. They say that Judge Jones's 
uh, ruling was untethered from market reality. So that talks a little bit about the insurance issue. They say he utterly ignored the commercial reality of the hospital marketplace and how prices are set. And then there's this discussion about what happens if there's a merger and how could that help consumers and stuff like that. There's a, 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 It's called the equities discussion. They say that lacked any analytical rigor. If a federal judge sees that and says that there is no analytical rigor in his decision, uh, you, you might not be uh, making too many people happy. Of course, he's not the person that's going to be deciding the appeal. It's uh, people ahead of him at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. I haven't read a lot of legal opinions, although I have read uh, some, in fact, some of Judge Jones' legal yeah, opinions. Yeah. And uh, he has a reputation of being a very good writer and backing his decisions by legal precedent. But that's strong language. That's not the kind of language you normally hear. And that, I think, is why in, in the experts that I've talked to, I talked with uh, many, and, and they say that's why the Federal Trade Commission may have appealed this, uh, likely appealed this, because um, they they say that Judge Jones kind of used different um, standards than what has typically been used. Doesn't necessarily mean his standards are wrong. It just means that they may be afraid, the Federal Trade Commission may be afraid that this could set a nationwide precedent. And as a result, it could be harder to fight mergers like this across the nation in the future. One of the things that's really uh, happening as a result of this is uh, because there were friend of court uh, yep. filings as right. well. This has be, is being watched across the country, which I, I, I mean, we're not used to that kind of thing. But uh, because just the reason you said that uh, uh, that other mergers like this could occur. Yeah. So what is what are the health systems saying? So the health systems are saying, OK, sh sure. Let's say we want to raise prices. Let's say theoretically, let's just walk down that road. We raise prices. Well, under the test, they say profitability is key. So we could raise prices, but if that's not if that's not a profitable move for us, then you can't block this merger. And they say if they raise prices five percent, let's say they raise prices five percent, if they argue under their kind of uh, uh, formulation here, they argue that if that drives seven percent of their patients out of their network, if you will, that it won't be profitable. So they're saying you got to really scrutinize the government's arguments here. They may say prices could go up, but prices may go up, but there may be a lot of people that may leave our network. And so it won't be a profitable move for us. And as a result, you they're arguing you court can't block this. You can't uh, rule in favor of the Federal Trade Commission. They also say everyone has leverage here. If you even if you consider insurance companies, insurance companies can walk away from negotiations over prices and say, we're going to take our patients other places. Now, of course, the government will say, well, there aren't a whole lot of other options in these four counties, Dauphin, uh, Lebanon, uh, Cumberland, and um, I'm blanking on the fourth right now. But um, so, uh, yeah, Paris. Paris. Thank you. Um, so they say. Insurance companies have just as much leverage as the health system does. So if they want to walk, uh, they can walk. And they also say that in that equities discussion, what are the benefits of a merger? They point to a couple things that we've talked about in the past, Scott. Overcrowding would be alleviated. This is their argument. Overcrowding would be alleviated at Penn State Hershey Medical Center because Pinnacle is under uh, capacity. 
Penn State Hershey is over capacity. Uh, so they say they could kind of, you know, rejigger patients and, and uh, they would be able to treat more patients because they, they alleviate that, that overcrowding. And they could admit higher acuity patients because Penn State Hershey, they say, has to turn away some patients now and send them to other hospitals because they simply don't have the space. A portion of the, this portion of the program is uh, brought to you by, uh, or should say, I should is part of WITF's Transforming Health uh, Initiative. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org. And here's one of the most important things that you'll hear during this part of the program. It's a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. And uh, obviously, if you listen to Smart Talk every day, Pinnacle Health is uh, one of our, and so is... Uh, Capital Blue Cross, right. one of our uh, supporters as well. So just want to let that out there that, uh, that, that people know what exactly what's going on. Um, why does this matter? Yeah, why does this matter? Uh, it, it all comes down, uh, if you look at it, to prices and quality and innovation. If you look at it, the government says that if if this merger happens, prices are really going to rise. Um, we'll we'll have to see what what might happen. But I think that there is a tremendous amount of concern that prices could rise and that this could be a large entity. And frankly, Scott, there's a, a significant amount of 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 evidence uh, that mergers in general in the same market lead to higher prices. There was that landmark study done in March that really looked at 500 different mergers. That's considered kind of uh, the latest and, and, and uh, greatest evidence at this point. Um, so there, there's a lot of concern about that, of course. Uh, on the and there's concern about whether you know if you're such a dominant entity, are you so focused on quality? Are you so focused on innovation? If you know you're going to get all these patients, no matter what you do, frankly. Um, now, of course, the the health systems would say, you know, if we are able to merge, we're going to be able to innovate more. We're going to be able to compete with the Johns Hopkins and the Penn Medicines and the Geisingers and the bigger health systems that we haven't been able to necessarily compete with. I think Penn State Hershey Medical Center would say that, a lot of our patients come from outside the area because we offer so many different services. They're one of the only, I believe it's uh, open heart transplant centers in Pennsylvania. There's only two others. Um, so there's this really, what it comes down to after we talked about quality and innovation and prices, this is going to reshape healthcare in the mid-state for years, for decades, whatever the decision is, whether it goes, whether the merger is allowed or whether this appeals court uh, blocks it. So this is going to really reshape health care. 30 seconds or yeah. less, Ben. If the appeal is denied and the merger is allowed, what happens? I, I expect that things will move pretty quickly. Um, I think that these health systems, they've been talking about it for a long time. Things will move really quickly. One date to note, Scott, July 26. That's the oral arguments for this case. Those are going to be in Philadelphia. You know what else is in Philadelphia? 
Philadelphia that week, a Democratic oh. National Convention. So uh, not going to be uh, a slow week in Philadelphia. Yeah, no, no, that's for sure. So uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be watching that. Uh, well, and I'm sure that you'll be there to, uh, to report on it. Ben <laughs> I Allen, sure hope so. thank you very much for being with us today. Coming up on uh, Monday's program, children, babies, and o- opioids. Uh, ben actually has reported on that as well. But uh, we're going to have a former congressman on the program to talk about uh, to talk about that issue. So be sure to join in.